Welcome to True Crime Mysteries, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart of the world's most gripping true crime stories. I'm your host, Megan, and I've spent years researching, investigating, and seeking the truth in dark corners where most people dare not look. Each week, we'll delve into a new case, peeling back layers of mystery, law, and human behavior. Together, we'll explore the intricate webs woven by those who break society's most sacred laws. We'll cover cold cases, missing persons, and recently uncovered serial killers, and instances where DNA has identified a killer. Join us as we journey back in the past, bring decade-old cases to life, and explore the dark, tragic, and inexplicable. And maybe find a light of justice at the end of the tunnel. This is True Crime Mysteries. Today, we have a compelling episode. We'll be delving into five cold cases that, against the odds, have been solved after being dormant for decades, thanks to tenacious cold case detectives, advances in forensic science, and the resilience of the victims' families, bringing closure and justice after many years of uncertainty. Let's get into it. Case number five, Kathy Spazito. After nearly four decades, the killer of college student Kathy Spacito has been identified. 23-year-old Kathy Spacito had been hiking on the Thumb Butte Trail in Prescott, Arizona on June 13, 1987. It had been early in the day, but the sun had been well up. Kathy had only just left the trailhead when she was viciously attacked. This was a very popular hiking trail, and multiple people had heard her screaming, but no one could find her until it was too late. The Thumb Butte area is popular for hikers, bikers, and campers. There are always plenty of people on the trails, but this weekend, no one is walking alone. Would you hike up here by yourself? No way. No way. Never. No. No. Definitely not. That's because word has spread of the murder last Saturday morning. 23-year-old Kathy Spazito hiked only a few hundred yards up a well-traveled trail when someone attacked her, striking her repeatedly with a rock. Three people close by heard her scream, but didn't go to help. The area and terrain are such that person could be in a lot of trouble and, and uh, not be very far away from people, and yet they couldn't see her. Sheriff's deputies say Kathy Spazito fought hard to save her life here on this hiking path. In fact, they said she left a trail of blood more than 125 feet long as she tried to escape her attacker. Today, deputies are once again combing the trails for any clues in the murder. They say they don't yet have a motive for the crime. Kathy wasn't robbed or sexually assaulted. In the meantime, hikers are warned to take extra care in the woods where heavy brush can hide almost anyone. For the guy who did, it's a good place to hide out. You know, it's, and, uh, it's pretty scary. I mean, it's just too scary up there. I wouldn't do it by myself. Kathy had been found in a brutal overkilling. She'd been hit in the head with a rock, which might have been an attempt to immobilize her. She had also been beaten with a ratchet that had been left behind by the killer, shot in the face, and stabbed. It had been a brazen attack. There were people around. It was daylight, and Kathy had fought back with every ounce of strength she had. People were responding to her screams and trying to find her. Years later, another woman was attacked in almost identical circumstances. This woman had been camping nearby and had decided to hike the nearby trail. 
She had only started the hike when she was attacked by a man with a rock in his hand. She had been sexually assaulted, but survived the attack. The time of day, location, and date had been too much to have been a coincidence. The DNA evidence was cataloged, but at that time, nothing had come up, and again the case went cold. The difference was that she had frozen and complied with her attacker's demands. Once his attack was over, he ran off into the woods. For decades, Kathy's murder would stump law enforcement. Eventually, her case was handed off to a volunteer cold case unit who worked the case for 12 years. And over the years, the case was reopened, opened, examined, re-examined by new detectives. Even decades later, tips still poured in regarding the young woman who had been killed on the Thumb Butte Trail. Kathy was remembered as a vibrant young woman taken too soon. While attending Prescott College, she worked as a waitress, and she'd moved from Brooklyn, New York, two years prior. Attention in the case was focused on the ratchet that had been used to bludgeon Kathy, as it had not just her DNA on it, but also that of her killer. His blood was able to be isolated, and it held the key to discovering who he was. Law enforcement sent the DNA off to Parabon Nano Labs, who were able to locate a female relative who had narrowed down the suspects down to two brothers, Scott and Brian Bennett. Scott was able to be eliminated, but his older brother Brian became the primary suspect. Brian, for some reason, went by his younger brother's name and had been relocated to Prescott a year prior to Kathy's murder. He had originally been from Kentucky. He'd been 16 years old and a high school student when Kathy Spicito had been murdered and had not been any kind of suspect at that time. Brian would go on to have a history of violence towards women, and after Kathy's murder, he'd been accused of sexual assault of two women. In 1994, he killed himself with the same caliber of weapon that Kathy had been shot with, a .22 caliber pistol. Law enforcement exhumed his body, and they were able to get a positive match to Kathy Spicito's murderer, as well as a sexual assault that happened years later. The announcement was made on August 25, 2023. Kathy's parents had passed by that time, but her brother was able to receive the news that Kathy's murder investigation was solved after 36 years. Bennett's DNA has now been added to CODIS, and law enforcement will be looking to see if there's any additional victims out there. They feel it is unlikely that Kathy was the only murder victim. Case number four, Evelyn Cologne. On December 20th, 1976, passers-by making their way along Interstate Road 80 near the Lehigh River in Carbon County, Pennsylvania, made a harrowing discovery. Underneath the bridge lay three suitcases that had been thrown from the bridge above. When people drew closer, the familiar stench of decomposition permeated their nostrils, and they flagged down the nearest police officer. When officers opened the three suitcases, they recoiled in horror. Inside were the remains of a young woman who had been shot, strangled, and dismembered, and dumped into three suitcases. Her body had been heavily mutilated, and the scene was too much for even the most seasoned officer to bear. Heartbreakingly, there wasn't just one body found in the suitcase, but two. The body of an unborn baby girl, believed to be at nine months gestation, was also found. 
The woman had also suffered sexual trauma before her life was taken. Investigators determined that the baby had been removed before the body was sawn into 10 pieces. On the left hand of the remains were the letters WSR, with a 4 or a 5 written in pen, with a 7 or 4 underneath the right hand side. The significance of these letters and numbers remains unknown to this day. The brutality to which this woman had been subjected to made investigators' stomachs turn. Whoever had done this to her had removed her ears, nose, and breasts in a bid to slow down the identification process. This level of brutality signaled to investigators that whoever was responsible likely knew the victim and was extremely angry with them. The case garnered statewide attention as residents were horrified to learn what had happened in their quiet community. Despite garnering wide-scale attention, no one recognized her. In the absence of a name, the woman was dubbed Beth Doe, and she and her unknown baby were buried in Pennsylvania. As the years passed, investigators continued to keep her case alive, but without any leads, it proved difficult. And with the advent of the internet, Beth Doe's case was picked up more than once thanks to internet sleuths. In 2020, the Pennsylvania Police Department partnered with Othram Labs to perform forensic genetic genealogy on Beth Doe's remains. Beth's femur was sent to Othram, who were successful in extracting a DNA profile. From there, Othram worked with another genetic genealogy company that discovered a possible relative. This relative was contacted, and after raising the necessary funds, they submitted a DNA sample. By February 2021, all agencies involved had completed their work, and they were able to hold a press conference. They announced that Beth Doe was Evelyn Cologne, who was 15 years old when she disappeared from Jersey City, New Jersey. In 1976, Evelyn was living with her 19-year-old boyfriend, Louis Sierra, and was in the final stages of her pregnancy. Louis was known to be abusive towards Evelyn, and her family urged her to leave him. Her family wasn't particularly fond of Louis, who had previously been a neighbor to the Cologne family, but allowed Evelyn to move in with him due to the pregnancy. A classmate of Evelyn Cologne, also known as Beth Doe, is speaking out now about the man behind bars for her homicide. Police <clears throat> broke open a notorious 44-year-old cold case back in late March. Through DNA testing, they identified the pregnant woman who was stuffed in three suitcases under the I-80 bridge as Evelyn Cologne of New Jersey. Now, her boyfriend at the time, Luis Sierra, is headed to trial for the gruesome killing. Elaine Caruso Long was her classmate and described Sierra as a, quote, stalker. Creepy, in a word. Stalker, in a word. And I did not like him. And I'll never forget his eyes. No soul. No soul. He watched her every minute of every day. According to reports, Evelyn disappeared sometime in December of 1976. That December, Evelyn's mother arrived at her apartment to deliver her some homemade soup. But when she arrived, she found the apartment empty. Both Evelyn and Louie were gone. In early 1977, Evelyn's family received a bizarre letter written in Spanish, supposedly from Evelyn. In the letter, she had said that she and the baby were okay and living happily. There was just one problem here. According to the Daily Mail, who spoke to Evelyn's parents, she couldn't write in Spanish. 
Her family desperately tried to find Evelyn over the years, hoping she would re-emerge after leaving, but she never came home. Louis was, of course, the police's primary suspect, and in March 2021, a year after she was identified, he was arrested and charged with two counts of homicide. Louis is now 63 years old and had lived in Ozone Park, New York for many years. Investigators believe that he didn't want the child and took matters into his own hands. The case is currently ongoing. Evelyn's surviving family members were shocked at the identification. They had never believed anything nefarious had ever happened to Evelyn and that she was just out living her life somewhere. Evelyn Colon was his little sweetheart. She was a mama's girl. She, we used to play hide and see in the closet back in the days. We used to watch TV together. My mother was the one that really took it home because she died. And her last words was to me at the hospital was, find Evelyn. Louis Colon Jr. grew up wondering about his Aunt Evelyn. A few years ago, he took a DNA test and uploaded his results to a database in hopes of finding not only his aunt, but his long-lost cousin as well. And that's why I thought, well, if I do this DNA thing, to go back to my other point, maybe she was always trying to reach us too. And she just couldn't find us. So that's why I, I, I did that. But I always felt a void. Something was missing. Like the letter said, he, he lied to us. This letter really, really lied to us. Because of that letter, there was no proof of, you know, there was no proof that she went on her own. Let me tell you something. I can't wait for him to come to Pennsylvania because I want to look at his eyes and ask him why. We got her name. That's important. We got the word out there. But now we got to get some justice here. In a statement to the media, her nephew said, quote, I wanted to find her, but not find her deceased. It was obvious there was no other person in the family who was missing, and that's when the ball started rolling. We're so thankful for that community, that Carbon County community, that they loved her, that they cared for her. They treated her like their own, these random people for all these years. Case number three, Deborah Kerb. On New Year's Day, 1974, Mr. and Mrs. Kerb returned to their Fresno, California home after a weekend away in Pismo Beach. They had left their daughter home alone. When they returned, they found the body of their 17-year-old daughter, Deborah Kerb, in her room. She was found on the floor of her room in a nightgown and a robe. She had been strangled with a leotard that had been in her room. Her mother told law enforcement that she had talked to her daughter on the phone Saturday night, and everything had been fine. Deborah was a Fresno High School student. Her boyfriend, Tim Robinson, also a Fresno High School student, told law enforcement that he and Deborah had gone to a New Year's Eve party and that he dropped her off at home around 1 a.m. Tuesday, the 1st of January. There was no sign of forced entry at the home. Authorities believed that she had been getting ready for bed, when maybe someone came to the door using that to get into the house. A sexual assault kit was done and the samples taken and preserved. Early reports had said that it was inconclusive if she'd been sexually assaulted, but more recent reports state that they believed that she had been. Authorities apparently had a person of interest who attended the New Year's Eve party with the couple, 17-year-old James Blaylock. Unfortunately, at the time, there was not enough evidence to charge Blaylock at that time. The case went cold. 
However, in 2006, a sexual assault kit was tested and returned with a match. James Blaylock. Blaylock, now in prison, was interviewed and denied any involvement with Deborah. When shown the DNA evidence, he changed his tune to say that they had consensual sexual encounter and that he had believed that she was alive. The district attorney filed the case, but it was dismissed due to lack of evidence. In 2021, detectives asked that the leotard that had been used as the murder weapon be tested with more advanced DNA techniques. It came back with a positive match to James Blaylock. When detectives investigated further into the charges, they discovered that Blaylock, who was 66, had died in hospital in 2022. This has closed the case of Deborah Kerb. Her parents are deceased and never got to know who killed their daughter. James Blaylock had an extensive criminal record, which it included being a registered sex offender. Case number two, Pearl Davis and Christina King. The Kansas City Police Department established its first dedicated cold case unit and has already solved four cold cases. One of these cases has been the murder of Pearl Davis and Christina King. The two women's cases were connected with DNA evidence, but at the time, the perpetrator was unknown to law enforcement. It is total relief, but um, her children are the most important thing because they were little. They were young. They were, I think, 10 and 12 at the time. Pearl Davis's murder had occurred in 1996, and there's very little information available on her case. On November 22, 1996, Pearl was discovered murdered inside a home in Kansas City, Kansas. Her cause of death has not been revealed, and the only information available is that it was strongly believed that she didn't know her killer. Christina King's body was discovered in an abandoned building on Christmas Day in 1998. There are reports that Christina had been beaten to death. At the time of the murders, the cases weren't connected, but when the cold case unit was established, detectives discovered that DNA evidence had tied them together. Soon after, they were able to identify the source of that DNA as 52-year-old Gary Dion Davis Sr. Davis was a cross-country truck driver at the time of the murders. His DNA is being submitted to other states as law enforcement believe he is likely to have other victims out there. Davis has been charged with two counts of second-degree murder and is being held in custody on a $500,000 bond. His trial will commence in the new year. He faces life in prison if convicted of either murder. Family members of both Pearl and Christina attended the press conference but didn't speak. Both victims left behind an extensive family who have been shocked by the recent arrest. Case number one, Susan Marsha Rose. The conclusion of this case is a little more unique. It wasn't genetic genealogy, there was no sting operation, and in fact, this case had very little hope of ever being solved. However, sometimes these things just happen, but on a random August evening, the now 68-year-old John Michael Ermer walked into the Portland, Oregon FBI office and confessed to the 1979 murder of Susan Marsha Rose in Boston, Massachusetts. Susan had been 24 years old at the time of the murder and had met Ermer while at a bar with friends. It had been Halloween night and he had offered to walk her home. While the two had walked into her building, the apartment on the first floor was being renovated. 
and it was then that Irma grabbed a hammer and hit the woman on the head. Susan had been found the following morning. Her cause of death had been blunt force trauma. She'd been sexually assaulted. There had never been a solid suspect in her murder. Irmer said that the following morning, he left Boston and moved to New York. Susan had been from a small community in Pennsylvania and had been at her family's insistence that she should go out and see more of the country. It had been her co-workers that had to identify her body. Following the confession, Irmer's DNA was collected and tested against evidence in Susan's case, and it was determined to be a match. Irmer had already been imprisoned for another murder. He'd been in prison for 30 years for that killing, and he also confessed to another slain in the southern U.S., but law enforcement has not been able to identify that victim. At this time, it's unclear what prompted the confession, but without it, he likely would have gotten away with murder. Irmer is being held in prison while he waits further court proceedings. He's been charged with murder and aggravated sexual assault. Since he's fully cooperating with law enforcement, it will likely be that there won't be a trial since he isn't fighting the charges. His next court appearance is unknown. Well, folks, we've reached the end of another gripping episode here on True Crime Mysteries. Thank you for joining me as we delve deep into the complexities of today's case. Before we go, let's not forget the human element in these stories. The victims, their families, and sometimes even the perpetrators are all part of a larger societal puzzle that we're trying to understand. While we explore these cases, it's crucial to remember the impact on real lives and communities. If you want to keep up with our weekly investigations, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are captivated by these stories as we are, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Your support helps us bring more unsolved mysteries and untold stories to light. With that being said, stay curious, stay vigilant, and most importantly, stay safe. Until next week, good night.